to come. Amen? Where's John Revelation 4? What a joy it is to worship the living God with you, church. Um, if we have not met, I'm looking forward to meeting you. My name is Joshua Kirstein. Privileged to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church and uh, excited to jump into the narrative, the gospel of Luke with you, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you grab your Bibles with me, turn to the gospel of Luke chapter one. I'm thrilled to uh, turn to the testimony of Christ now. Luke has promised in his prologue that we studied last week, verses one through four, he promised to write an orderly account of all the things that came to pass with respect to the person and work of Jesus. One of the key decisions then that he has to make is where to begin that account, that orderly account. And Luke uniquely, by God's providence, does not start that account with the birth of Jesus as Matthew does in his gospel, or with the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, as John and Mark do with their gospel accounts. No, Luke begins his account with the testimony of John the Baptist's parents and Jesus' parents. Later in this sermon and in some of the sermons to come, I will get into why John the Baptist is such an essential part of the testimony of Jesus Christ. In the meantime, it's important to, uh, to us to be reminded that John is the prophesied, promised forerunner, announcer of the promised Messiah. As we'll see later, what a, what a high call that is. It is helpful for us, church, to realize the context of what we're about to read as it unfolds. The angel of the Lord is going to visit Zechariah and have a word from the Lord, from God, telling him the promised forerunner of the Christ would be his son. Church, this moment of this visit from this angel is a landmark moment in the life of Israel and in the world. Why? Because for 400 years, God has been quiet. The last prophecy given, the last word of the Lord came 400 years before this. If you just peek back in your Bibles with me briefly to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, and just here, I'll just excerpt this one phrase from 3 verse 1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then silence for 400 years. I don't know if you and I have a way to really process that. Waiting on God, waiting to hear from God, waiting to hear about the arrival of the forerunner, about the Messiah. Nothing. 400 years. I mean, that is a long time, a greater amount than you probably know of in your line of ancestors, right? You might know some about your parents, those who came before you, their parents, your grandparents, maybe your great grandparents. Maybe you've done some of the things to look back to your great great grandparents, but all of those. All of that history of your family is still likely not 400 years. I mean, just to try to capture this for a moment, think about our own American history. 
what was happening 400 years ago in 1620 the pilgrims were on the mayflower landing in plymouth new england that th so think of all the american history all of it that happened after that that's 400 years I share this with you to help you appreciate what it meant for God's people to wait, to hear from him again. And then now finally the silence is broken. And the Lord ordains an angel, Gabriel, to visit a priest by the name of Zechariah to give him great news. Look with me. Luke chapter 1 verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. To understand the setting, right? So God ordains that Luke would give us some, some clarity of the setting of these happenings that we're about to read. So the setting is King Herod is, is ruling. The king of Judea is Herod. And, and what we need to just quickly understand is those were dark days for the Jews. Um, for the people of Israel. Herod was a king of Judea. His reign lasted about 36 years. He had some notable accomplishments. One of those for the Jews, very significant, was the rebuilding of the Jewish temple to its grandeur, and that was a very sweet contribution and one that meant a lot. He also had a few politically strategic good things he did for the Israelites. Um, he lowered taxes twice. That was for their good. He melted some of his own gold and gave money to the poor again some political movements that there were some of the jewish people like this is great herod's awesome yay herod it's kind of interesting if if you love the word of god and have studied it or or as you're growing to love it with us um there was a group of jews that became so pro-herod uh that they formed a party called the herodians and, and as I say that, you're like, okay, I've heard of that. And them mentioned in the New Testament scriptures. So we have a little more context for who they were. Um, Pro-Herod, not very pro the things of God. So they were kind of uh, antithesis, but interesting altogether. Uh, Herod is more known not for those maybe looked at as good accomplishments, but for being a very wicked man a very fleshly man who ruled strong under the oppressive Roman Empire. Um, not only did he rebuild the Jewish temple, but he erected many pagan temples and thereby initiated many pagan practices of worship. Um, even though he held great ca uh, power, he was known largely to be a coward, uh, to be a very paranoid man so much so, so worked up, constantly concerned of losing his power, that he would kill anyone that he viewed as a threat, including members of his own family. He had killed his own wife, her family, right? And, and some of you, you know, might not necessarily care for the in-laws, but that's extreme. He had his own sons, some of his own sons, killed, murdered. Uh, a wicked man. 
upon this political backdrop, the Jews living under the reign of Herod, Luke continues to report about a Jewish priest named Zechariah. Zechariah's name, church, is worth noting, especially when we understand the context of the moment. See if you can see how special this is. Zechariah's name means God remembered again. God has remembered again. Think about that after 400 years of silence, the appropriateness of that. It's really cool to see how the Lord ordains to use many people's names in correlation to how he's going to use them. Um, Zechariah is going to be the one that this news, this silence is going to be broken. The word of the Lord is going to come to him. Just to pause and, and maybe process that for us individually, church, there is surely going to be times in your life, in our life, where we might begin to think the Lord has forgotten me, forgotten us. And we have to remain oh so steadfast to trust in the promises of God and in the character of who God is, right? In his in his omnipresence. He's so present that we don't even know how to give him credit for how active he is right now that you and I are even here. And then we have the audacity to think that somehow he's absent or where he's forgotten us. Realize you wouldn't even exist right now. You wouldn't be held together. Gravity wouldn't work. The chair you're sitting on wouldn't function without the active omnipresence and sovereign hand of God. That still doesn't change that sometimes in our flesh we can really struggle. But let us remember his promises. Let us remember his characteristics. Let us remember the promise of Jesus himself who said to the disciples and therefore to us, the church, that he will be with us always to the very end of the age. He is not a liar. So that is true. Christian, he is with you. Not forgotten you. Peter reminds us of this reality in some really important words in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 9. He says, do not overlook this fact. And we can quickly overlook it. So listen in, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some might count slowness. Right? So we've got to be so careful not to take the God who is outside of time and, and, then, and then try to fit him in our box, to try, try to make him fit in our constraints, to, to be so arrogant to say like, hey, God, this isn't happening in a time frame that I think it should happen. God's time is not our time. The, the very testimony of Zechariah is a great reminder of that. I'll finish today's sermon quoting Isaiah to remind us of, of those things again. His ways are not our ways. May we never hold God in contempt for things not coming to be in our time or in our way, the way I want them to. May we confidently say instead in faith, Lord, do your work. Do your perfect will. In your perfect time. And may I be 
right in the middle of it. Full of patience and full of faith. Luke 1, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So Luke next testifies that Zechariah is of the division of Abiah, and Elizabeth is from the high priestly lineage of Aaron. This is big news. This is helpful context. If you want to further discover um, these layers of the roots of these things, you can, you can read how David, King David, organized the priestly order and made the divisions referenced here in 1 Chronicles 24. You can make note of that if you want to go read how those divisions were made. And we see in that text that the priestly order of Abiah was eighth on the list. Eighth. That division was eighth. Elizabeth is also mentioned from priestly blood um, in the line of Aaron, right? A daughter in the line of Aaron. I mean, Aaron was such a significant priest used by God in major amazing ways. Go back to the Old Testament, read his testimony. And so it's helpful for us to know that it was common in that day for a priest to have a wife of priestly background and when that was the case, that was considered in that culture a special privilege. Speaking of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke continues in verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What a wonderful testimony this is. I want us to really capture this. This is a great, we're learning about these people and how are they known for being righteous before God, walking blamelessly, obeying the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Oh, how I pray that each of us longs for these things to be true of us. That I don't think of a better way to do, I don't think of my own way. No, I want to be obedient to the Lord. I want to, I want to not give in to the flesh. I want to do what's righteous. That we would be righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, we know because Scripture is clear that no one other than Jesus himself, no one born of the seed of man, the fallen seed of man, our federal head Adam, and our original sin, our inherited imputed sin, is righteous other than Jesus. Jesus was not born in the seed of man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. We're going to get into that in the coming weeks. And lived without sin. Jesus is the only one. So what Paul says in Romans 3, 10 and 12 is very important to hear and understand. Not one person, none is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Everyone apart from saving faith in Jesus, the work of the Holy God, that, this means any of the things that I think I do in my life that are good apart from Jesus are still sinfully rooted. They're not to the glory of God. Therefore, they're not considered worthless. They're, they're wicked. They're, their aim is creation, not the creator. Oh, how desperate we are for Jesus to give us saving faith that our lives may be actually lived in the good things we do for the glory of God. So when Luke is referring to that they were righteous before God and walking blamelessly, 
in light of this truth that none are righteous, then how do we understand this? Well, what he's referring to here is a steadfastness of faith, a maturity of faithfulness to God, a evidence of a sanctified life, one who is mature in, in God. In other words, they're no longer constantly giving to sinful habits or falling down into the snares of the devil or the temptations of life as an immature person does. No, they've matured. Do they do this perfectly? No. Again, no one does that, this side of glory, other than Christ himself. But their testimony is that they walk in righteousness constantly, regularly. Their good practice is to do what honors the Lord instead of to do what dishonors him. Scripture speak of many in this way. This isn't unique to these two. The Scripture speak of Noah in this way. The Scripture speak of Job in this way and others. This is also a requirement for qualification in maturity of the shepherds of the local church, that those who God would save and sanctify and mature and be tested and raise up would have a testimony of ongoing maturity. 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer must be above reproach. The Greek word there for above reproach means blameless. Not perfect, but their normal given daily testimony is one that falls towards the side of doing what's righteous, not towards doing what's sinful or selfish. May we aspire, church, to greater degrees of righteous living, every one of us for becoming more and more like Christ. I mean, that is the journey of what it is to be a Christian. May we never say the level of sanctification I have arrived at is good enough. I'm, I'm good. But if some of, our, some of us are honest, we've found a lot of times in our journey where that's kind of just where we get. Like, I'm pretty good right here. I'll do some of these other things, but you know, I've pretty much figured it out. Or yeah, I'm not really interested in what it takes to up, upheave enough. You know, just, I'm just, I'm good. May we be hungry, be convicted, be moved by the Spirit, the truths of God, to be done with our sin to be accountable for it, to want it to be dragged into the light, to do whatever is needed to be done, to be willing to be discipled by more mature believers, to be helped to be more Christ-like. Zachariah and Elizabeth have been chosen by God because they're faithful people who love to honor the Lord and obey His commands and live their life righteously. But what's interesting is even though they were very faithfully devoted to God and his ways, they suffered for a lifetime in a pretty significant way. And verse 7 shows us that. Look with me. It says, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Elizabeth being barren means that she is physically unable to conceive children in her womb something that many couples, many women have faced and struggled with over the years in the history of man. Many of our very dearly beloved 
sisters, couples here at Disciples have been on that path, unable to have kids or conceive but not see kids to full term. Scripture says that kids are a blessing um, and that they're a wonderful part of the economy that God's given to man, that we would multiply, that we would raise up a new generation in the truths of the Lord for the work of the Lord, for the fame of the Lord. There are other famous women who were told uh, were also barren in Scripture, Sarah, Hannah, mother of Samson, were barren. In those days, especially those days, women unable to conceive were looked down on heavily in society. Uh, we're going to see Elizabeth testify to this later in our very passage. <clears throat> the kind of immense part of like her journey is related to that, as she's known on the streets. Of her, of her community. The bad assumption that many people make is that the barrenness of a woman is uh, a result of her sin or the couple's sin, a punishment from God to shut the womb. And while maybe the Lord providentially does do that in certain instances, that, that's not what's happening here. Why? God tells us these people were righteous. They were faithful. So their barrenness is not a result of their sin. It's not, it's not a punishment for that. And thereby setting the table to show us that many times what the Lord's doing in things like this is a mighty work in our lives. Church, God is good. And he is faithful to do his perfect will in our lives. We have to remain confident of these truths, even when we're going through a hard stretch of life, maybe even a lifetime of barrenness or suffering or struggle. May we remember the, the words of the Lord when the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Point to a blind, blind man who sinned that he has this consequence. Jesus says in John 9, verse, verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. How might the Lord be using real suffering and struggle in your life to do a mighty work? We belong to him. These days are his. For all of you who are struggling through long-term pain or sickness or, or struggle, be emboldened by the fact that God is on the throne and surely at work in these things. What a testimony it is when the people of God are then asked authentically, Aren't you frustrated that God has not delivered you from your pain, from your struggle? And we get to say in faith, because of my faith in Jesus, I long to be in the middle of God's goodwill for my days so that his amazing works would be displayed in me. What a testimony of faith that is. In response to a world that says, don't you want your money back? 
No, I want to be right in the middle of God's goodwill. I, I love God. He's the greatest thing. My great treasure is not the relief of this. It's Jesus. We're going to come back to how this reality um, for these two plays out later. But look with me now at verse um, 8 through 10, and let's understand the setting of how God decides to break his silence. Uh, Luke 1, 8 through 10. While he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and burn incense, temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. What we have here is the old covenant happenings of priesthood and operation that God has set forth, Israel had a lot of men who served as priests. Historians will tally as many in that day when they do the work that 18,000 priests were at work. And that's a lot, but when you think of all the people of Israel and how major that role was for the economy that God had set for them, we understand that there was different divisions or groups of that large number of priests and how they operated. But what's unique is that of all those priests, only 14 men were selected to be the ones to be given the high honor of going into the temple and to burn incense and give prayer in this way. In this holy and sacred place, a priest would offer prayers of intercession on behalf of the people with the incense as a way. The incense going up would be a symbol of the sweet aroma of the prayers of God's people going to God, a sweet aroma to God. How were these 14 priests selected for this high honor? By vote or vetting of their peers? No. By the selection of God through the old covenant means of the casting of lots one who's sovereign over the roll of the dice. The lots would be cast and the 14 men would be picked by the hand of God through those means used in the Old Covenant. A very special call, therefore, on Zechariah's life to be one of these few. Selected by God to be entrusted with such a high honor, go before the Lord in this special place on behalf of his people practice was so important and such a big deal that God's people, as we read here, would gather outside the temple to pray while the priest was doing this, right? It, it wasn't just like, hey, honey, I, I, man, I'm so excited for you. Go enjoy that. Yeah, we'll be here. Tell us how it went when you get home. I don't know. They're all there. They're praying. This is a big deal. What a sight. It must have been for the people outside to see the smoke crest over the rooftop of the temple, make its way to the heavens, the priest offering prayers on behalf of the people. After the smoke would finish rising, the people then were accustomed to rising up to prepare to greet uh, the priest who was faithful to these things to emerge from the temple soon thereafter. The duty was done. But Zechariah did not emerge quickly that day. Luke tells us why. Look with me. Verse 11 through 12. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Church, don't forget, don't forget, it's been 400 years since a word from the Lord. Not a word, surely not a visit from an angelic messenger. So join me in understanding Zachariah's shock to be in the presence of an angel of the Lord. Startled, troubled, scared, surely all good and natural physical emotions would overtake any of us. And we see that testimony in many of the giants of faith who came before him as well, as the angel of the Lord appeared before them. Verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. I don't know what would have been more overwhelming in that moment when we understand all of it, that the mighty presence of an angel of the Lord or to hear him say, God has heard your prayers and your old barren wife is not only going to conceive, but you will have a son and you will name him John. The thing they've been praying for their whole lives is going to happen. How many things are you faithful to pray for not once, not twice, not weekly, not a dozen times, but for a lifetime? To yield those things to our good and glorious God in prayer confidently, knowing well that it might not be God's will to grant you what you're asking for, but also knowing that God is able to do anything that is in line with his good and perfect will. Make it personal for you today. Do you trust that God hears your prayers, Christian? 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Church, God hears our prayers. He knows us. He hears us. He, he loves us. It's important that you see God is faithful in this. You see him as present, that he will hear and answer your prayer. But we have to remember that prayer is answered in God's time and in his way, not ours. We have to remember God's promises and continue to think of him and trust him according to those promises, according to what he's revealed to us and not according to the circumstances of the moment. Because if you do that, you will hold him sinfully in contempt. If you do that, you won't like the space and time that you're in and go, you know what? Nah, I don't like how this is going. This is not okay. That's a sinful place for us to be, to hold God in contempt in such ways. We need to think of him, interact with him, trust in him by faith according to how he's revealed himself to us.
the testimony of Zachariah and Elizabeth is one of the high and best examples in all of Holy Scripture that we have of God's response to our prayers, especially when we're guilty of feeling like it's not fast enough. To remember and to be okay with the fact that it's going to happen when and if God wills it to. God will accomplish his perfect and holy will every time and in all things. That's our confidence in our prayer life, trusting it to him. Before we move on, notice with me, the angel says that Zechariah's son is to be named John. This has traditionally been the authority given to the father to name the children. Uh, that goes all the way back to the headship of the role given to Adam, our federal head. What was Adam's assignment? To name all of the beasts and all of creation. That's a big task, right? Um, Adam was even the one to give Eve her name, according to Scripture. That said, we also see God lay claim to the authority to assign a person's name when he chooses to, right? That authority of God is greater than that which he gives to Adam. So when God says, no, no, I'll name this one, then he gets to do it, right? Not only does he get to do it, he, he gets to change it when he wants to, too, for his good purposes, as we see him do. Zachariah is charged to be sure that his son's name is John. This is because the Lord ordained a very special purpose for John. The angel speaks to this as he continues. Look with me at verse 14 in the first part of verse 15. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Uh, I love this right here. I think sometimes we hear this, we're talking about a baby being born, joy, gladness. All right, yeah, that's good. We all get that. Let's keep moving. No, no, no. Capture some of this with me. This is so good. Not only will they rejoice at his birth, but he'll go on to do great things for God. Uh, church, it, it is one thing to be given a child to love and to lead. That's a blessing. But most of us also know that not all children are always, or sometimes rarely ever, a source of gladness. Okay, we don't need to mention names. For some, children can really be tyrants. Um, they can remain in their sin. Uh, they can never come to repentance and faith. S some can be very sick and therefore very hard. Some can even die or leave us. Uh, these things bring the opposite of gladness. They, they are a source of real heartache and pain, suffering. But not John. The angel says that Zechariah will have joy and gladness and that many others will rejoice at at john's birth that, that he will be great before the lord uh, man again what a testimony what a testimony I, I often will will tell our parents who we hear news that they've conceived to count each day as a great gift why because god doesn't owe you another day for that child to live 
He's not more good if the child lives or not. That child exists for God's good purposes and will. So we need to steward every day the Lord gives us in the womb. And if he gives us tomorrow, then we steward that day in the womb. And if one day we get to meet that child face-to-face through birth successfully, then we'll get a new way to praise God and walk with that child and then and beyond. There's going to be rejoicing at John's birth. But not only that, at his life. What does he say? The angel says he will be great before the Lord. That is no small statement because it is not a reference just to general greatness. He does not just say, John's going to be great. And, and maybe some of the ways that you and I get to be great and do great things. No, no, no. His greatness is going to be before the Lord. His greatness is going to be in a class, in, in a group of very hand-picked men of God's creation, men given a, a calling of high purpose in the economy of God's holy will, a, a class of greatness before God like few others in all of creation. That, that's who John stands with, according to this. Greatness like of Enoch, who walked with God and was translated to heaven without even dying. Greatness like Noah, whom God spared from worldwide wrath and selected him to begin a new era of mankind. Greatness like Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest. Greatness like that of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, God's chosen old covenant people. And like that of all the patriarchs to follow Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, the lawgiver, David and Solomon, the great kings, the high and great prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. John the Baptist was great in the likeness of these men. How great? The only way that greatness really matters in the eyes of the Lord. Church, we cannot miss the profound purpose and call of God to ordain the forerunner of the Messiah. This is no small passing narrative that Luke is giving us here. See with me the mighty, majestic, sovereign work of God unfolding in profound ways before our eyes. Next, the angel of the Lord turns to speak of the uniqueness of John's particular ministry call. Look with me at, at the next part of verse 15. He, he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elisha to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Run through these with me one by one. First, the angel said he must not partake in strong drink. Verse 15, a faithful study of scripture will show us that partaking in and enjoying alcohol in moderation is seen as a blessed gift of God is often seen as a part of celebration, life together, now and forever. It's even modeled by Jesus and the disciples in a positive way. 
It is so important that we have a right and righteous view of alcohol according to scripture, not tradition, not personal conviction, but God's holy word. For it is not sinful, nor is it prohibited for God's people in and of itself, as some will often either believe or testify. But there are a few in Scripture who are directly given the charge to abstain from alcohol due to the uniqueness of their kind of ministry call. In the Old Testament, there was a restriction for the priest when they were performing their priestly duties. We see that in Leviticus 10.9. The Nazarites uniquely had a more holistic restriction that they would vow not to drink alcohol for their whole life. We see that modeled in Judges 13. Or they would refrain for special periods of time, as we see modeled in number six. This vow was most often voluntary, but in some special cases, it was a requirement given to a special person called by God. This is the case for John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not testified to be a Nazarite. He was uniquely defined by most theologians as what's called an ascetic prophet, a prophet, one who would bring the word of the Lord in a very unique way. Asceticism is the practice of one who commits to a very severe self-discipline of abstention, of abstaining from many forms of indulgence for religious priority. John the Baptist was set apart by God for a very specific and very high purpose to be Christ forerunner. And so his severely simplistic life, which we're going to read more about as we study John the Baptist in the coming sermons, as we move through the, the Gospel of Luke, has a purpose of God to make him stand apart for this unique and high call, right? So John did not have like a sweet shoe collection, right? You know, he, he lived very simple, very cut back. So the, the, the call for him to abstain from alcohol was just one part of that asceticism that he lived out as a prophet in this unique way. Second, the angel said John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Uh, this is a beautiful sign of the doctrine of unconditional individual election of God. Uh, unconditional individual election. Uh, we have a simple and good definition in our, the Word of Truth Catechism that we study. Uh, I'll share it with you quickly. Before creation, Scripture teaches us clearly, before creation existed, God chose which individual human beings would receive salvation from sin, death, and God's eternal wrath. The choice to redeem certain ones is not based on any so-called goodness, will, or work in them. Rather, it is based on the freedom and grace of God in Christ Jesus alone. Contrary to many modern-day people, even my own thinking being raised in different circles, naively set apart from really the clear teaching of Scripture, is that we choose God or not. Scripture is clear that that's not how salvation works that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God chooses to save or not. That's his holy and free will to do so. Uh, so the testimony of the Holy Spirit filling John even before he's born is a beautiful sign of this. Why? Because 
John doesn't like peek out through the womb and say, hey, I'm in on this, this thing. Oh, give me the Holy Spirit. Oh, why? Because God's the one who regenerates a dead heart to give us faith. That's a work of the Lord. The Lord's in a sweet way ordained and chose that John would not be of a certain age before this would happen, but that regeneration, the work of the Spirit would happen upon him in the womb. Why? Again, for the very high and, and special call on his life. What a wonderful testimony about the free choice of God to choose whom he will save and regenerate, not based on anything we do or don't do or choose or don't choose, but based on his will to do that in his timing, not ours. But later, church, as we work through this narrative, we're going to have a wonderful confirmation that the Holy Spirit does indeed indwell John in the womb. Because John's going to have a dance party in the womb in the nearby presence of the incarnate Christ in the womb of Mary by way of kicking his mom. Third, the angel of the Lord says that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. What a profound statement with deep implications. Why? Because until this point, the people of ethnic Israel were God's chosen people under the old covenant. See, even people who have a struggle in their own flesh to embrace the doctrine of unconditional individual election, that God's the one that chooses, they're not paying attention to scripture. Why? Because God chooses all over the history of it all. Out of all of the world, he handpicked this tiny little people group, this tiny nation. Israel, to be his chosen beloved people under the old covenant. But a great shift is about to take place in John's specific ministry to call people to repentance and to point them to the Messiah directly to Christ, the one who would install a new covenant between God and his people, the one whom the people of the promise would believe and be saved. You might be thinking, well, aren't the people of Israel God's chosen people? They are under the old covenant for its time and its purposes, but only those whom God has chosen from before time to give saving faith in the Messiah, in Christ alone, are the ones who are saved. Some of those within ethnic Israel, and some not. Right? These are often referred to as the people of the promise. The clarity of the distinction between these two is given to us in a cool place in Romans 9. The Apostle Paul speaks to it in verse 6 through 8. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel, okay, they're ethnically Israelites, belong to Israel. So essentially what he's putting into view here is two Israels. There's ethnic Israel, and then there's what? we would call in theology true Israel, the actual elect who are saved. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, right? The children of Abraham are those who are uniquely spoken of in scripture as those who have faith like Abraham. Faith in the one, and the only one that can save, the coming Messiah, faith that saves in Christ alone. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh, ethnic Israel, who are the children of God, 
but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Uh, just a beautiful help. Those who belong to ethnic Israel, they had, if they were going to truly be of God for eternity, they had to put their faith in the only one who can save them, in the coming Messiah, with the elect we see throughout the Old Covenant who had faith in the coming Messiah are the evidence that they are God's eternal people, the children of the promise. So now here's the forerunner of Jesus. He's going to do a work in a very special time to really point people to the actual Messiah who's here, coming, arrived. There he is. Turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. What a precursor for John the Baptist's most famous words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. Fourth, the angel said John would go before him in spirit, in the spirit and power of Elijah. The Old Testament prophecies spoke of the return of Elijah. Um, and many would go on to think as John emerged and did his thing that he was Elijah, according to their misunderstanding of those prophecies. Um, he even is approached, we see in the, in the New Testament, and asked directly, are you Elijah? And he flat out denies it. No, I'm not. So he's not a reincarnate Elijah, but one with the anointing of the Lord to do the ministry of Elijah as a great prophet in the New Testament time, in the New Testament era as a forerunner to the Christ. Moving on for the sake of time, the angel said John would turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready the Lord for the Lord a people prepared. Simply put, John the Baptist would lead a great time of repentance in the lives of people. Many would repent. What does that mean? Turn from sin and turn to what is righteous. Turn to from sin and turn to the only one by which they can be saved, Jesus. This would have ramifications, according to the angel, that would start in the home. That with the head of the home, the father, the one that the Lord has assigned the role to love and lead those entrusted to him. Fathers, we have been given a very high call. And we need to realize that our time to fulfill that call in the lives of our children being children is very short. If you need a big kick in the head about that, ask some of the guys whose children are grown. And you know, you know how fast it's going. It's going fast. I would say a lot of us don't necessarily need to, to like make major changes. We just need to be better stewards of good time that we have with them when we're not working, not doing other things. Better stewards. We, we need to, joked with first service, put a bullet in our TV. And please don't hear your prescription of your pastor to go home and actually pull your gun out and shoot your TV. There's legal ramifications for that. And we're all in trouble and before judges and it's all bad. But how, how much of a win is it for the enemy that the people of God are just mindlessly in front of screens so often and we just give away so much time And maybe it's just removing all the apps that claim to be helpful, but just they're perfect, deceiving, just thieves of time. 
And what would it be like in a more simplified setting to just really get to be together and look to the Lord together and not to be able to be so just out of the way? For some of you, maybe it is a serious taking account of your days because you're working too much. You're working too much to buy nice things or to have a certain kind of lifestyle you think you need, but it's at the cost of a real investment into your wife and family. And for so many years, I've walked with kids who become young adults and adults who just say like, the time with dad to do the important stuff, to really dig in, to be known, to grow, was way, way more important to me than the nice new Jordans he bought me or that one crazy vacation we went on. I mean, if you go home and ask them, they're going to say, yeah, dad, I'll take Jordans. They don't know yet, but they will. But they will. For some of you, it's doing what's needed to change the lifestyle to bring your wife home so she can be present with your children, shaping and walking with them. This repentance movement starts in many ways in the home, and therefore it starts with us as the fathers, the head of the home. The angel also includes a turning from the disobedient life to a, a, the wisdom of the just. And, and brothers and sisters, just hear the heartfelt plea from one of your shepherds that is super simple and yet can be totally game-changing. And that is, in what ways are you walking in disobedience? In, in what sinful practice is a real or regular part of your life? And do you just realize that you're not going to thrive in your faith if you are given to these things? Christian, you can't afford to take sin lightly, to turn a blind eye, just to stay busy. You can't afford just to come to church but not deal with the real sin you know is in your life. It, it's kind of like driving a, your car with a big flat tire into the mechanic and say, hey, can we tune up some stuff? But we're not going to worry about the flat tire. I'll keep driving on that. And then you keep pulling in with that flat tire and wondering, why is life so hard? What, why is this not... Why am I in so many accidents? Why am I not getting where I need to go? We have to be convicted and then go to work to lay the axe to the root and to really invite an accountability where people can really know what's going on. I take the mask off and be helped in the good biblical ways we're given to walk together, to be discipled, to be counseled, to be helped, to make changes and to begin a path of righteousness to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. I love Peter's words in 1 Peter 4, 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. What he's saying is any amount of past sinning is enough. It's enough. If, if you sinned a little bit before you were converted, more than enough. If you sinned a lot, 
for many years before you were converted, it's enough. You can never sin so little that you can really say, you know what? Just a little more sin. Beloved, are you guilty of thinking, I know I need to get to this area. I know I need to really deal with this seriously and make a break with this sin. Ah, just a little more time. I'm busy with these other things. I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to it later. Church, hear the truth about what God has done for you in Christ. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You are the possessors of the power to no longer sin, to, to confess that sin, to turn from it, and to walk in it no more in Christ. To let repentance have its way unto the wisdom of the just. Just as the angel says, many, this will happen in many in John's day, I pray it is happening today in our day. Turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It is wise to turn from sin and to walk uprightly, to walk paths of righteousness, to have testimonies that show that we are part of the forgiven and the justified. Beloved, don't wait another day. Don't keep making excuses. Don't say, I'll get to it tomorrow. The Lord has given you today and as John most famously said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I pray this is a part of our testimony. Real repentance is happening. Real maturity and sanctification is happening. Finally, the angel, angel says that John was going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, prepared for Jesus, prepared for the Messiah. May we be prepared for the second coming of Christ a people who have done the business we need to do to turn from sin and honor the Lord. Not a people who would say, wait, wait, oh, here he comes, wait, wait, time out, wait. Just give me a few more hours, a few more days. Let me get some stuff tucked in. Okay, and then you can come. No, let us not be that person. It says, we must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect, Matthew 24, 44. May we heed the warning given by the Lord to get our houses in order and be prepared for the coming of the Lord. For that, the stewardship of that time is way better than whatever the trophy or other little short-term thing that you're really worked up about lately. That's going to burn. That means nothing for eternity. Let's do that. So Zechariah hears all this and what happens? All this, his very old wife, would successfully bear a son, and that son is going to be used by God to do great things in all of history before the Lord. And in hearing this, Zachariah is just overwhelmed. And he does something that any of us can be prone to do in especially big moments where we forget our faith and instead process that moment in our flesh and walk by sight. Look with me. Zachariah said to the angel, Verse 18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you to this good news. 
And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And it says the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. Zechariah doesn't hear Gabriel's amazing news, which are the answer to his prayers and so much more. He doesn't hear this news with faith. He hears it with his flesh. And he doubts. And he's full of disbelief. How easily, watch this, even the most faithful can stumble in this way. To walk by sight instead of faith. To lose sight of the absolute truth that what is impossible for man is absolutely possible for God. A truth that has been testified time and time again in Holy Scripture. A truth that is rooted in the very fact that God is God. Oh, how we need our faith to see God for who he is at all times. That we don't become forgetful. When, when we do this, when we forget, when, when, when some, we're faced with something and we throw faith out the door, it's like jumping out of a good working boat into the middle of a massive storm in the ocean, thinking, you know what? I'm just going to handle this better on my own. Don't do that. Right? It's, it's, it's like when we say, I'm going to build my house on the sand instead of the wisdom of building on the rock. It, how quickly we can be like Peter, faithful brother in the Lord, so faithfully calls out to Christ to say, let me walk on the water to you. And he does. Peter walks on the water as he's focused on the Lord. But the moment he looks to the storm and thinks about his own ability, he begins to sink. Matthew 14, 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, Peter, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But Peter is a great man of faith, modeled by his very willingness to get out of the boat and walk on the, on the water. But how quickly we can forget, how quickly we can turn, how quickly we can get our eyes off of Christ and onto our circumstances and be consumed. And I just want you to see the failure of that. It will mean consequences in our life when we turn to that, when we give way to the flesh, when we choose to fight back and argue, when we choose to, to let the flesh have its way. It's going to mean consequences in our life, some of which you might be paying for for a long time, in jail, in your finances, in your relational life, real consequences to real sin. But sometimes it also, or, or otherwise, could mean the good discipline of the Lord in our life. That's what we see here for Zechariah. The Lord loves Zechariah, and so he disciplines him for his choosing to walk by sight and not by faith. When we abandon the faith and live according to the flesh, the Lord who we belong to will often love us to discipline us. Just like I love my children to discipline them, to not leave them in their mess. And so the assignment of him not being able to speak is, is, is the wonderful disciplinary hand of God on Zachariah's life. 
May we see and savor the fact that God is at work, church, despite how it's going. And even when we might be in a season of discipline, may we be slow to complain. Here's how spoiled we are. Zechariah is given this amazing news that his lifelong prayers have been answered. He's going to bear a son that's going to be the forerunner of Christ. And yet how quickly in his flesh or other people around his flesh, could they have gone home that night and said, oh, poor Zechariah, not going to be able to talk now. All this great news. And now this. Like how, how quickly we can be emerged in just amazing blessings of God and find something to complain about. May we embrace the good hand of the Lord to discipline us, to love us, not to leave us, but to take us forth, to refine us in his refining fire. May we not lose fact of the fact that the Lord loves those he disciplines, as we see in Hebrews 12, another text to note and spend some time in later. Hebrews 12. I pray it would be this way for each of you, each of us, that we trust the word of the Lord when it comes. When we study God's word, we would give ourselves to it. We would trust it. We would not deny it, walk by sight instead of faith, just as he received the word, that we'd, we'd receive it in faith. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. May that be our testimony. In closing, in verse 24 and 25, we see it say this, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. What a testimony Elizabeth has. I can't wait to dive into it more with you. Therefore, we're not going to go far into it now. But can I say, God's timing, church, is not our timing. His plan is better than ours. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord says. Your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I want to say this now, and I'm going to return to it in fuller explanation in a later sermon, but older women in the room, like Elizabeth, God's not done with you. How do I know that? Because you're still here. Your graduation is way better than this. He's got a plan for you. May we not lose sight of that. May we not lose hope that the faith that we see modeled in Elizabeth be like our own. That the Lord is the one who ordains our days, church. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let, let the faith you have in Christ go to work so that you're ready to be used by the Lord in his amazing and perfect ways. It was truly a miracle for such an elderly woman to conceive at that age, and yet it is absolutely normal for God. Extraordinary to us, nothing for him. Church, we need a right view 
of the fact that the most incredible things, the most amazing miracles are so easy for God. Have a right view of who our God is. This will be a great emboldening to our faith as we go about our road. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this time together to look at the testimony of these people, the emergence of this setting of, of the gospel of Luke and your providential choice that Luke would share with us first about Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'm thankful for these who have come before us. I'm thankful for how you use their lives. I'm thankful for their suffering for a lifetime and their obedience in the midst of that. That is a great example to us. To, to the days where we just say, I can't do it. Lord, let us remember we can do all things in Christ. It's Christ power. It's Christ at work in us that gives us what we need to do what honors you. That we would do business with the things that we face this morning, whether it be a more consistent prayer life or, or an opportunity to repent and turn from, from sin and to do business in our homes, to, to turn to what is righteous, Lord, by faith, just to trust you more than we do have a new layer of our faith go to work. I'm excited to see the fruit of this. I'm excited to see how each person here gets to just say, I've been so focused on the person next to me or over there. Lord, thank you for the opportunity you're giving me to do work on me. That you love us enough to discipline us, to convict us, to take us where you want to go. More than anything, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Oh, we have no hope. We have no salvation. We have no power without Christ. And So it is Jesus who we celebrate now. The name of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. Hear us, Lord, your people. Take us from this place. Mighty testimony of Christ. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.